right. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you, Pete. Um, can you can you introduce yourself for the for the um, I don't know, maybe maybe I've grown. Maybe my listenership has grown over the past couple of months. Maybe there's more than five. But uh, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Chris Henrisi. Um, I'm a mental performance trainer based out of New Jersey. Uh, my company is Compete Mental Performance Training, and I'm, I'm really excited to be here with you today. Is there, um, is there like a kind of athlete you, you, like a sport or athlete you gravitate towards? Like yeah. you feel like that's kind of your bread and butter? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, yeah, you know, uh, in the, um, the area of New Jersey I'm in, is a highly competitive high school and prep school uh, athletics. So I work with a lot of high school kids. Um, college kids. And uh, I, I guess if you were to identify a sport, uh, baseball and, and the combat sports are probably my, my bread and butter, as you said. So I, I warned Chris, I was going to start off with a funny question, but not really a question, but a uh, discussion. Do you remember when we first met each other at that sports site conference? Uh, pretty distinctly. What do you remember from okay. it? So I was actually, I was meeting with a client and the client was talking about having trouble like making friends. And I actually shared this story. Oh, and I love I, it. And if I remember correctly, <laughs> we were at, this was, it was at like a transition time between presenters and we were both going, we were both standing at like a water cooler thing. And uh, I don't know, th- did I ask you or did you ask me? Like if you knew anybody here? I, I think I asked you. Okay. And I said, no. And I think I asked you, do you want to be friends? Yeah. <laughs> is that, is that right? That's right. I, the only other thing I remember is you saying something, the effect of we're supposed to do this, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yeah. And, it, and, um, and, you know, I shared that with the uh, client I was working with. Um, they didn't go for it. They were <laughs> <laughs> They, uh, I shared that. They're like, yeah, I don't really, I don't really think that's how, um, how it works. So, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe this the time was right. The, the planets aligned or I don't know. We found our quirky way. Exactly. Exactly. I think, and we're going to talk about like, you know, mental health stigma in sports and, and how that's up and coming. Um, I get. I, could it be related? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like. Um, I think socially, you got to kind of just like find your people, uh, even on your team. If you're an athlete, like, uh, of course, you want to respect everybody on your team. Like, there are there going to be people on your team you don't get along with sometimes, sure. Um, but yeah, you know, you want to be my friend. Yeah, when, when I talk to people about those situations, I. I don't know what you think of this, but I talk about finding your way that for as well as you and I get along, we communicate differently. We're different people and we will probably approach different situations based on our own individual quirks and idiosyncrasies. Right. Yep. Yeah. hundred percent. So, you know, uh, you're aware of this, the, uh, seems like the tide in sports psychology has shifted from uh, a lot of performance stuff to mental health stuff. Um, And 
I guess I'll start by saying I'm happy about that. Mm-hmm. Do you have any uh, reactions to it as you've been as it's been unfolding? Yeah. Um, I first and foremost, I also am happy about that. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you think of this because I, I have a related question for you later. But yes, just- I, I think the the performance based sports psychology served as a proxy for a while. It, it was a way for athletes to access mental health services almost under the guise of performance enhancement. And now, while that is an important service uh, and, and one I'm deeply passionate about, I feel like we get to call it what it is now. And, and that is that mental health is a key part of the whole individual athletes included. What, what do you think of that idea? I, uh, I did not think about that. And I absolutely love it. I think, you know, maybe, um, well, I agree. Number one, uh, number two, the more and more mental health is destigmatized, the more that, um, conversations can be deepened and broadened in athlete populations uh, to just, well, the way I think about it is uh, not just, we're not just like having conversations and teaching skills for you to get through this tournament this weekend, athlete X, Y, Z, or this season, like this stuff, my hope is that this stuff stays with you for life. And then this is the stuff you can teach your kids. And if you decide to coach, you can incorporate this in how you coach that, um, it, it's, it's stuff that translates into all areas of life. And, um, it's, it's thoughts that I had uh, for a little while. And then after actually, I think it was last year at some point, um, I watched that documentary, the weight of gold. I don't know if you've seen that one. I don't think I have. So it's the, it's the Michael Phelps documentary. Um, about like it's basically about mental mental health in in olympic athletes including himself and uh watching that watching uh the tiger woods documentary on 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 hbo um listening to other athletes you know talk Uh, i listened to abby wambach talk on um i think the name name of the podcast is like uh only, only women athletes, only female athletes, or only women. I forget what it's called. It's, you know, it's very clearly. It, so it's it's hosted by female athletes, and then they're having female athletes on as guests. Her her open discussion about it. Uh, I listened a lot for a while. I was listening a lot to um, I Am Athlete. It's Brendan Marshall's podcast. It's all like ex NFL athletes. He talks about you know trying to change the climate of of mental health and, you know, amongst men in the NFL. And then with all that, I'm kind of like, so what, you know, what is, so I, you know, I'll I'll say this before we got on today, I was doing a little homework. I was watching the Naomi Osaka documentary series on Netflix. She's literally saying word for word in 2019, 2020, I don't know who I am Hmm. outside of winning. I don't know who I am outside of being a tennis player. Um, 
that where, where am I going with that? Um, that when we solely focus on uh, skill building for performance, and that's what we, and that's what systems fund, and that's what athletes see. What's the meta communication to an athlete? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of them, you know, if it's not so good, is this is actually what's important. What's important, what's, what's important in the most thing, and the thing that's most important is me being good at a sport and winning. And, uh, and what we're seeing now is that that's a huge problem. You know, that was a problem. I think, I don't remember, you know, exactly, but uh, with Tiger Woods, but certainly, you know, in, in how Naomi Osaka has been, you know, been, been so open about her experience. Michael Phelps was incredibly open about his experience. Um, Kevin Love. Kevin Love. I haven't actually uh, listened as, as much, uh, heard his story, but we, you know, we kind of have a system that sets athletes up for this an identity crisis. And that's, and it's not a comfortable experience being in an identity crisis. Um, whether it comes when you're losing or when it comes when you retire, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you brought up Nomi Osaka, who I think has been incredibly brave in the way that she's tackled this. And you brought up her documentary and saying, you know, I don't know who I am. When we think about mental health at the time, she was about 20 years old. Yeah. So the neurodevelopmental task, the primary thing you do at 20, right. Is identity development. That's right. And so here she is saying, I don't know who I am. And I can't imagine the pressure it puts on her athletic performance because I don't know about you, but with my athletes, I always start with person and performer. They're not the same, right? We could talk about you as a performer, but you are an entire, your pie chart is not 100% athlete, right? And that for her to feel like she's got to be that, I, you know, each mistake feels like a crushing blow. Exactly. And, and what does that do to your mental health? It becomes extremely fragile. It's a very fragile and um, it's like, you know, sand through the fingertips. It's very hard to hold on to because it's contingent on an outcome. And I'll have the same conversation with athletes because I'm very, that's kind of my bread and butter is athletes are people, right? Athletes are people. And um, people are multidimensional, multifaceted. Um, And when you have, when you make that statement that you just made with an athlete, sometimes they have this kind of like, it looks like, you know, they've seen a ghost or, you know, like, whoa, I've never heard that before. Or, and even sometimes recently had a conversation with an athlete where they were like, yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem. That's why I have pregame jitters is because I feel like I'm a failure. If, if I, if I don't perform well, it's like, it's all riding on every, my whole uh, self-worth is riding on performance and geez, talk about pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, first I want to say that I think there's a lot of really great coaches out there and coaching um, has come a long way, but especially at the levels that, that I work at dealing with, with high school and, 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 prep school and college athletes, they are literally taught eat, sleep, and breathe your sport. 
And when I talk to them about the concept that who you are as a person is separate from you as a performer, they almost get scared sometimes. Oh, absolutely. How do you give up that identity? How do you, how do you look the unknown in the face? Right. Yep. So, so how do, how do you encounter that? So the way I frame it, and I, and I, I think I've shared this actually uh, on the podcast before, but maybe people are jumping in right now. So you'll hear it again. When I was trained in hypnosis, I volunteered to get hypnotized in front of the audience. And, um, you know, it, it was hypnosis for chronic pain. And I had mentioned, you know, I had a lot of pains in my body. You know, I competed too. And uh, this guy, uh, Dr. Patterson, instantly... <laughs> He, he very, very skilled, right? So I went into trance very quickly. And one of the exercises he talked about, he was an athlete himself. He talked about, you know, Pete, there's a difference between the little eyes and the big eye. And the little eyes are the things that we do. You know, you're a psychologist, you're a dad, you're, you're an athlete. You're, I was competing still at the time. You're uh, a son, you know, all that stuff. The little eyes are the things that we do. The big eye is who you are. And the way I structure it when I meet with people is as I ask them, you know, who, who knows you most in this world? Mm. Mom, mom, dad, girlfriend, boyfriend, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa. Okay. So if they're sitting here right now, what, would, what do they love about you? Um, sometimes there's been a very few cases where someone will say, well, it's because I'm hardworking. It's because, and then I'll say, okay, you got homework. Your homework is to go ask that person this question. Yeah. But oftentimes it's, you're, you're caring. You're, uh, you are empathic. You have a great sense of humor. Um, you know, the uh, intangible things, the things, and, and then I just educate them, them on like, so that's actually who you are. That will probably never change. And when we invest in the big eye versus the little eye, now our self-worth and our and confidence to some level is within our control because no one can take that away. No win or loss, how ba however bad it is. Um, that's how I do it. Yeah, I, I love that because I think, you know, I, I almost want to incorporate that because it, it's who you are now and who you are intrinsically, right? Yes. And if I were to add something to it, something that seems to resonate with the athletes that, that I'm fortunate to work with. So I asked them about their personal philosophy. And that phrase sounds really grand, but I think it gets people to buy in. Uh -huh. And to me, your question is, who are you? And let's respect that. And I think the personal philosophy is about who do you want to be? Yeah. What traits do you admire in people? And, and where's the intersection of those two things? Right. Even going back to our conversation about how we met, you can't try to be something that you're not. Yeah. Right. And, and we were pretty skillful at that. But <laughs> but um, but but I love actually starting with where an individual is personally, because that that's the here and now. Uh -huh. and, and we have to start there. So that's thank you for that. That's that's beautiful. And thank you for what you share, because that's the bridge. That's the, you know, if I try to, um, as much as possible, incorporate a strength-based approach. Like, so what do they already know? Like, what's your, what's, 
what's what's that athlete's bread and butter stuff that they can rely on as to, to help them just go forward they're they're kind of bedrock and when you have that stuff that's a really good that's what they can lean on in their pursuit to what you just air uh, you called it their philosophy i just call it their their athlete values well so what is it who do you want to be as an athlete and what will that look like in terms of your choices on and off the court field wherever um that it's all it's all this kind of big picture process where athletes get really stuck is like in the in the next game versus to being the capacity to just take a step back uh well like, you know it's i think it's actually just like a combination of being able to take take a step back while also being very immersed uh which feels kind of diametrically opposed initially but it's 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 not yeah yeah you know i i want to give i want to highlight this about athletes too the the pressure that they they face to know themselves at a young age i think is immense because yeah. i even think about you know it, we could look at professional athletes are, are a great window in, into what it's like to compete. Right. And when athletes are able to shake off their mistakes, they're oftentimes ridiculed for it. Right. Uh, uh, Manny Ramirez, the baseball player, is it Manny being Manny? Everybody, everybody felt, Oh, he just doesn't care. I think he was just a master at separating his performance from who he was as a person. Yeah. And yet, and yet there he is, you know, I mean, he was absolutely bashed for it, right? So if you're 21, man, I wouldn't want to be held accountable to know myself that well at that age because it's, it's really, it's such a challenge and, and credit to the athletes for doing that work, right? Because, oh yeah, it, it, you know, your average 21-year-old and, and I was probably one of those, you get to develop Mm, kind of in private yes N not over instagram <laughs> and there's so much there's so so much that goes into that you know that uh we talked about this before we were recording but how much pressure there is now with every second of your every, someone wanting access to every second of your life um and as you get better and better and better the sponsorships that you know they want this and that um and where is i going to go with this you know it, it's there's all and we going back to stigma piece it's also like poor mental health literacy right you shared that factoid about like it's actually not appropriate to expect a 18 to 21 year old to um you know confidently sit at a prep press conference and not look nervous and um and be eloquent on a microphone and be able to on a talk show just kind of ramble stuff off that's 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 not fair to them that's not fair in the context of they've spent their whole life being trying to be the best at this sport and now you're also asking them to be a person like a public figure where is the training in that 
where's the training in that there's i mean there's there's literally none you just kind of you're watching them learn in in real time when they are when they're doing something um going back to your your comment about coaching you know one of the things i'm i'm very passionate about and i hope to grow is really um trying to educate coaches uh and change what a what what the coach athlete dynamic looks like um right if 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 we as a um community are dedicated to the development of athletes rather than just winning then we're we're we are part of getting them through that process whatever that process looks like uh um kind of like in a in a mature way whatever maturity looks like for them and uh and how can we how can we arm coaches or athletic trainers with the skill set to have conversations with athletes about some of the stuff we're talking about in a way that's not shaming or blaming not like okay so pause so you need to go to you need to go to the counseling center well i mean like there's a way to if that is appropriate there's a way to have a conversation about that in a way that's not like okay that's your shit figure it out versus like okay so can can i help you with this what would be helpful right even those two sentences are part of a larger skill set that i don't unless coaches are trained in in mental health i i don't know if that's happening or maybe they're just really empathic you know and they have that 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 going for them but that's yeah. something go ahead well I, I just love what you said there about you know uh, we'll go to the counseling center right because i think that when we talk about stigma and that that's sort of the overarching umbrella of our conversation today that's how it's treated like like detention yeah right and then what i the way I phrase it is then the, the psychologist becomes what I call a hired gun. Uh-huh. Fix this. Uh, yes. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Fix this, right? Right. Individuals, all individuals, athletes included are dynamic. Uh-huh. And so now in an athletic setting, this athletes put in some sort of counseling, not only as punishment, but there's pressure on that therapeutic intervention that isn't the best way to get results, whatever that means yeah. for that it's, individual. It's not okay to be not okay. That's right. right? And now, now we have this, uh, that's just more shame. That's just more shame, more, it's, it's not a right. Um, and uh, that that's a, that's a broken system. That's a broken system. Yeah. yeah. And then, right, what the, the conversations, the private conversations I've had with people who work in counseling centers uh, at, at different athletic institutions, particularly, I think, on the collegiate level, where they're employed by the university. Those counselors are then met with a barrage of, well, what did he say to you? What, what did she discuss with you? What do I have to worry about, right? And, and the answer is really, that's none of your fucking business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. that, to your point, that system, you know, listen, at the, at the pro level, most, most NFL teams just refer to private practitioners. Great, great. There's, 
you know, you get your HIPAA laws, you, you get all of your confidentiality, but if you're 19 years old and you have to go to the counseling center and a you're in detention and B you're afraid that your counselor is going to tell somebody, well, where's the help and the understanding of what the athlete's going through. Yep. You know, perhaps a shift is that it, it just becomes part of the services offered. And that's what, you know, um, in, in one of my jobs that we're really trying to do is just be like, this, this is, this is what, this is part of the package. Right. And having that conversation with all teams, uh, female and male, like this is, this is important. This exists. Um, here's why it's important. Um, that, you know, I, I totally agree with you. You know, it's, um, this is just the beginning, you know, this is just, uh, unfortunately the beginning and it's going to take, it's going to take time and it's going to take more and more athletes being open about whatever's, whatever's going on for them. Like, you know, I think I was asked in one of these interviews, like something about Naomi Osaka being like a, a figurehead. And I don't know if I said it, but what I want to say is like, that's not really, unless she wants to be like, that's not fair to her. You know, that's, that's no one's, that's no one's, uh, uh, thing to bear that that's when, when change happens, it happens is when it's just like understood, just like you have your medical physician for when someone tweaks their hamstring, right. That when you, when you see an athletes, you know, really struggling with being away from their kids or, or, you know, uh, recovering from an injury. Avi Wambach was like very open about how like that was one of the hardest times for life. She had very, uh, um, I think she had a tip fib fracture, which is what I had. Um, and it's, it's brutal. It's, you know, and it's, I mean, completely different at, 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 at the level she was playing at, but, and it changed her. Um, it's going to be a long road here. Yeah. What do you think of this? You know, when I think about coaches, if, if we can return to that for a moment, you know, I, I think coaches can lead by example. I love what you guys are doing in, 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 you know, your, your one job in terms of just making psychological treatment so normalized that it's just, it's just part of the process. If the coach is the first one to go talk to a sports psychologist. Oh, now we're getting into it. Then as a player, it, it's, it, it just becomes part of practice, right? It there, becomes part of a program. There's no, that, that's something that doesn't even exist yet. There's no performance or sport psychology for coaches. And uh, for some, as for one of us, or if there's another psychologist listening, that, that is a, uh, that's a potential huge area of growth. If you can get, if you can get a, a coach, a bunch of coaches to buy in. Like one of my ideas was like have group therapy for coaches. I love it. The show up in uh, a, a room of people who, who understand the pressures of trying to, you know, wrangle and hurt and, and get these young athletes better and, and to grow. Uh, all together at once and, and get along and, you know, their job and all, all that stuff. 
Like that's and with the with the pressure coaches are under. I love that idea because again, you know, everything I not everything, but a lot of what I talk about is that that person and performer separation. And coaches can fall into the trap of viewing kids or athletes strictly through their performance. And if they can connect to the individual and on the field, they connect to the performer. Well, in a group therapy setting, I think they could hold each other accountable to that process. Yes. Right. And I think they see results from that Mm -hmm. in their program, in, in program adherence, in, I don't like to focus on wins and losses, but you know, it it matters. That's how, I mean, for the person who eventually develops and implements this program, that's how it gets marketed. Right. That, listen, you, you know, you want, you want to keep that athlete who, who has their struggles coming onto their team, but you understand has tremendous potential. It could be a huge role player. You, the more that you meet them with this preconceived notion of what their needs are, you know, I've heard other coaches say, you know, why aren't they more like me? Why aren't they more like my generation? Why don't they understand X, Y, and Z? And the more that there is this kind of, and you see this, this transgenerational, I wouldn't say hazing is the right word, but just like being a no-nonsense hard ass, my way or their highway, um, you know, the, the more that you're going you're gonna to lose those athletes, that yeah. they're, it doesn't give them the space to, to grow. It's stifling. Yeah, we're beyond that. And and I, I think you've talked on the, the podcast before about a growth mindset. You know, the the best coaches that I've had the privilege of getting to know, you know, at, at 70 years old, they're able to connect with a 16-year-old from the Dominican Republic. Oh, yeah. I, you know, it, it there there is no my way or the highway. There is no my generation. It's it is person-centered. Um, they 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 understand cultural shifts and that's how they really grow individuals because at, at, at its core that's what we want out of our coaches right mm-hmm. yeah and I, I believe and you know part of my process uh with the athletes resource is growing a psychologically informed coaching program that uh, this this is teachable this isn't i mean a person has to be open to learning it you know uh but it is it is very teachable, very practicable. It's not a it's not your your kind and and open and warm or not. That's not the case. That's not the case. All you need to do is be is be interested and open, like you're talking about. Getting to you know, what the old saying: seek to understand before being understood. No one no one's going to care about your your cues. Your well, shouldn't say that. You know, I think an athlete when they're in a system, they have to give, you know, they have to yield a certain amount to whatever's happening, but that's all kind of on a spectrum. But if we really want them to, to connect and with, with the, with that person being the coach and the team, the more that we're able to do that, the more it just becomes a more hopefully uh, seamless process. Uh, something super passionate about. And I hope that, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I don't care if I'm 
if someone else hears this and go and goes and takes it, we need to do this. We, yeah. this, this needs to be done for, for athletes. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not the proprietor of this idea clearly. Do you see, again, trying to keep stigma in mind, do you see barriers of entry for coaches into a program like that? Of course, of course. And it's all this, it's stigma. Right. You know, the, um, just like picture a coach in your mind, picture your, a coach, maybe even you've had, and then going up and, and telling them, Hey, you know, coach, we got this program. What do you think about it? I remember in, you know, in some of my teams, there were coaches who were renowned for making athletes cry. But that was, that was like, you know, a thing that happened. Um, that it's, you know, I think, of course, there's a potentially a cultural piece, a generational piece, which, which comes with that, that, you know, um, people are more and more open to talking about and being open with their feelings and their thoughts. Um, I think I just lost track of your question, Chris. Well, it's okay. I, I want to build off that even because I, I would like your reaction to what I'm about to say. Because I think it's important too, and I communicate this to athletes and to coaches. You know, you, you brought up coaches making kids cry or athletes cry. And I'm not even personally talking about, you know, in the intensity of the moment, yelling happens. Yeah. Right. This isn't about, you know, uh, reducing competitive drive. No, right. That's, and, and, and unfortunately, I think one of the barriers for coaches is that they, they listen to some of these ideas we're discussing and they, they feel like we're, we're trying to make a team one big group therapy session. And, and I don't you and I both have competitive histories. And I don't think either of us are talking about that. It's, it's why you're yelling. Yeah. Right. Or, or what you're what you are. So you may be trying to motivate an athlete and what you're saying. But you may be very interested in them buying in and getting better. And the words that come out of your mouth are, you're a fucking loser. Yeah. Which I've, I've, I've heard. Me too. I've, I've heard some version of that. Right. And, and how tragic and how tragic that you really wanted to motivate that young athlete and you were interested and it came out like that. And, you know, how, how old, you know, we've talked about neurodevelopment in an athlete. How old does an athlete have to be to, to understand and sift and, and hear the signal through the noise there and pause and say, oh, coach actually really cares about me. No, right? that, that's, that's a very advanced capacity for any adult yeah. versus a, yeah. a 19, 18, 20 year old athlete. Yeah. But even, even at the professional level, you know, if you're 24 and, and, and you're breaking into your event, you're, you're a young adult, yeah. right? But those words, I, you know, the, the, the one question I wish some of the coaches that I've met got better at is what just happened there? Yeah. You, just right there. What yep. just happened? Tell me what you saw and why you did what you did. You want to yell after that based on the response. Okay. But there's a lot of assumptions made 
And I think that's where their competitive drive um, interrupts their ability to ask that question and instead says something like, you're a fucking loser. Yep. The, the simple, that, that one question changes the way that you can respond to that athlete because athletes need to be pushed, right? That's, that's what, what we're after. Yep. They want to get better. You, you want them to get better. Yep. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe there is a couple athletes out there that when you say those very harsh words that it actually does motivate them, um, you got to know your audience. You have a, again, going back to an athlete who comes from a, uh, a household where there was domestic violence or there is domestic violence and you, you yell and use that language. And, and that's again, like poor mental health literacy, right? You're, their nervous system is just going to shut off right there. And you're, and uh, it's going to feel like an emotional injury. They're going to go on guard. Uh, and of course, in the moment, maybe a coach doesn't understand that, but that's part of why this education is so, is so necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and back to our original point, I think, I, I love what you, you brought up about a, a kid coming from a home where there's, there's domestic issues or, or even just emotional neglect, yep. right? That those harsh words become what I call a foregone conclusion. They're, oh, well, yeah, I'm a loser. So now why go to the counseling center? Yeah. Because at my core, I, I don't have worth. Coach just told me. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, uh, you know, I, that's something where, again, all these brave, high-profile athletes who are willing to discuss their own stories, I think at least opens up some sort of access to uh, to appropriate uh, good mental health care. And uh, one of the questions, you know, based on that I was asked is like, where do we get that? How can, you know, I think so if we're, def- if, if we're kind of developing the system, it's, it's ed- educating the way I think about it, it's educating athletes on ha- having them sit here in on this conversation with us and understanding, you know, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to be hurting. It's not wrong to talk about that you're hurting. It's not wrong to talk about that you're struggling. It doesn't make you weak. Um, having that being conversation, helping them identify when they're hurting and what to do about it, helping the coaches, athletic training staff. And then there has to be the resources. There has to be the resources there. You know, um, in my experience, uh, it has a lot to do with how like contracts are made and time is allocated. Um, That if a, sometimes there's, there's not a lot of space in a counseling center or room for some of the athletes that come in. Um, and sometimes contractually there's limitations, let's say, um, where you can't, uh, I'm I'm being vague on purpose, uh, where you, you, you know, that with the amount of hours that are allocated, you could not serve a, a, an athlete population of, of a school. And so there's barriers there, you know, and if people again are, are, dedicated to the mental health of athletes it's kind of like okay so let's see 
let's see. Yeah. And, and the, the piece that I wish was communicated, you know, it, it isn't wrong to talk about struggling or hurting, but talking about is where resilience is, is forged. Right. And, and I, I'm, I struggle with the term mental toughness. I think that, I think there's stigma around that, that oh, yeah. if you're tough, you can't hurt. So I, I, I really personally shy away from that, that particular phrase, but um, if you're going to build mental toughness, it starts with acknowledging how you're doing, not ignoring it. Right. Because that, that's where you're going to, you're going to snap. Yep. Um, and, and that's the piece where, you know, there, without that understanding, there will continue to be a lack of funding of resources, whether that's time or money in this area. Um, I use this uh, example when I'm meeting with athletes, um, but you know, what, so what is toughness? Most people, adults, whomever would rather, <laughs> um, you know, run into a burning building, go fight a war, fill in the blank before they talk about their feelings. So you tell me what's tough, right? That people, you know, and I don't know if, if you have the experience, you know, in, in the care that you do, but once feeling comes up, it's like, all it's like they're, you know, you, you watch somebody just get so, so uncomfortable with it. And I know that there's many things that get layered into that. And I think, you know, stigma is one of them. Like, it's not okay to feel this. It's not okay to, to, to be uncomfortable. It's not okay to talk about this. But what I, you know, and this isn't a thought I had, but how, you know, what kind of strength and bravery and toughness does it, does it take to take a, you take, take an honest look in the mirror, a full look in the mirror at how we are and being vulnerable about that. Um, and I also think that the more that a person is able to do that, the more that they actually are able to achieve this kind of like unshakableness right? yeah you're not going to tell me something i don't already know you're That's you know right. you're not gonna if i'm the athlete you're not gonna there isn't going to be an experience or maybe there's less experiences i should say that are going to shake my foundation of my belief in myself or my confidence or anything like that because i've, I've done the work i've done the work like what makes situations hard to adapt to and extract knowledge from and allow them to pass is when they feel like a, an emo it taps on that old scar that's never been healed or never even been looked at. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. And I, and I, I, I love that piece because I think that that's what helps you to, you know, sometimes we can't control who our coach is. No. Right. If you, if you go to public high school and that's, or, or, or you're at a university and, and the, the head coach changes. If you know yourself, if they're the kind of individual that's going to call you a loser, it won't land. Because you've, no, I'm not. Exactly. There's, there's no room, there's no room for it, right? Yep. And, and, but, it, but it starts with being able to talk about it. And, and this is, this again, these are the barriers of entry that we see, right? Um, you know, I, and, and this too, you know, one of the things that I try to discuss with, with athletes and, and my, my mental health clients, 
you know, I, I, I start a lot of sessions like this and I'll say, you know, some people come in here and they say to me, Chris, I know why I'm here. So let's roll our sleeves up and let's not dance around it. I want to dig into it. But there's a whole nother kind of person that really wants rapport. Mm-hmm. And then if they feel like they have no choice but to talk about things before they're ready, it can really be kind of traumatizing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that latter view is more common. That's the go to the counseling center. Now I have no choice but to talk about really challenging subjects. And why would anybody want to do that before they're ready? Yeah, that, that's terrible, right? Yeah. So, you know, and that's the mental health literacy you were talking about. And that's, I, I guess, what we're, we're trying to impart today, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, the other thing we talked about was, you know, the intersection of uh, like diversity issues and LGBTQ issues. Um, and uh, how does that get wrinkled into this whole conversation about stigma and and all that stuff. And, you know, of course it does. Of course it does. You know, when you grow up into a world uh, where you um, begin to understand a sense of difference uh, based on how you look or how you feel, uh, and that you learn that that difference from other people you talk to or people you go to school with or just from commercials, uh, that that's not okay. That makes it that makes it even harder. Yeah, yeah. That makes it, it, please. No, go ahead. Uh, you know, I'm so glad you brought this subject up, right? And I think it's important that we acknowledge our bias here as two straight white guys, right? So I think that's important to be said. But the issue is still there, and I, I don't know about you, but it blows my mind. Well, well, no. Uh, I have all the empathy in the world for the challenge that. LGBTQ athletes face, but as a culture, we haven't enabled them to be themselves, which when you talk about really knowing yourself as a person, if that's not explicitly accepted, what does that do to you? Because what we just had one NFL athlete come out as gay. And I think there was an NHL athlete that came out as well. And that's, that's rare. Which, in, in, in male sports, it's, it's extremely rare. Right. It's extremely rare. Um, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it, you know, um, when athletes grow up in in an environment where uh, their personhood and their their preferences are not honored, or maybe they're, you're even getting communications from a parent or brother or sister, you know, you know, one day you're going to, one day this will be, this is a phase, you know, you're going to, you know, or, or how come you don't like or aren't interested in, in the other gender. Um, and we talked about it earlier that the whole piece about self-worth, um, there's even, there's even less space for um, disappointment or um having things not go as you'd hope, hope they would go in a situation or getting hurt that um, there's less buffer for that to become a really, really hard experience because there isn't that internalized sense of goodness from the immediate environment, from greater society, because 
for a lot of reasons, you know, um, how things are, the whole piece about heteronormativity and how that's a huge part of the media. I think it's, you know, very slowly changing. Um, but, you know, the communication is white and straight is good. And those yeah. values are good. And, how, and that's how you should carry yourself. And in some cases, uh, unfortunately, that's what coaches are looking for. Uh, they want that kind of like straight laced, you know, uh, go get them. I, I don't know what would be like the uh, heteronormative <laughs> white yeah. guy athlete, you know, um, yes, coach, no coach. Um, yeah. uh, and, and I think, right, there's the communication that anything else is a distraction. Yes. You're, you're, you're so devalued in that phrase, right? You're a distract. Who you are is a distraction. It's, it's, you know, I, I think pop psychology is great. I think it, it's, it's, it's an access to certain concepts and ideas. You know, people have lately used the term gaslighting. I, you know, we could debate that, but it's that, it's that implicit communication of a term uh, such as, you know, uh, you're a distraction that doesn't really address what's going on here. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's a total rejection of uh, intrinsic value. And, yeah. and it, how, how could you, I, I go back to, you know, seeking mental health treatment in that instance, what do you do if you go to the counseling center and they don't have LGBTQ resources? I, it, Right. And I, I, I think to your point, we're, we're cut, we've come a long way there, but we have much further to go. Can you say what you mean by LGBTQ resources? Do you mean like, you know, support groups? Do you mean uh, like I I, providers who are sensitive to the topic? I, yeah, I think it's informed. Right. Yeah, yeah. So if you go staff your, your, um, if you go staff your counseling center, with a bunch of straight white people, right? It, it, anybody from a, a diversity, equity, inclusion perspective can't go there and find someone that they might feel comfortable with, right? Right. And I think that that's part of that's part of these systemic changes that you've alluded to in terms of creating well-informed access to good mental health care. Otherwise, it, it I think it compounds stigma. What, what do you think of that? I agree. You know, I part of me says, you know, um, or really hopes that every single clinician, whether master's level or doctoral level, is bombarded with training and education on diversity so that we're able to create a warm, inviting, and open environment for people who... Um, are not white or not straight, basically, or differenti differentially abled um, in case of some of the work I do. Uh, Great point. Great. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, huge, huge shame in that for a lot of people as well. Um, but you're, you're right, right? That just going into an environment and seeing someone who looks like us for a person could just take down, you know, some of that, some of that stress, a little bit of that wall, like, okay, all right. So, you know, um, uh, I'm, I'm not going to get some of the messages I've gotten before 
Um, and even, even sometimes, you know, I, I've less with athletes, more on the mental health side. Um, clients are very hesitant to, to honor it sometimes. Like, because it's almost like, Ooh, I'm putting this out there. It's going, you know, this, and it's kind of this dance of like, I get it. Like, you know, just help me understand, help me understand what it's, what it's like to be going through what you're going through. And yeah. you need, you as the provider, you need to prove to them that you are, you're not going to, you're, you're not going to be rejecting, shaming, blaming about what's going on. I completely agree. And that's on us to stay informed, right? percent. You know, uh, we, we can't just sit here and hold other people accountable. We're, we're part of a system and, and, and staying informed is important for us. And I think, you know, we've talked about athletes and stigma today. We've, we've talked about coaches and stigma. I just think, I think the third level is the, the systems having, you know, uh, diverse leadership, that is psychologically informed in these systems, what, you know, whether it's a school or a professional organization, a, a gym in case of, you know, CrossFit and things like that. Yeah. So that you, cause really they're, they're crucial in creating that environment where, yep. where access to services, like you said, is just like getting a physical. Right. Uh, but it has to be done the right way. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of my, you know, goals have to do with, you know, uh, having these presence be involved in, um, you know, fitness spaces, specifically CrossFit, because it's, you know, with, with sport, especially if you're like, you're in a public school, there's the cost barrier is a little bit less, right. That you can get on the team. It doesn't cost you money to be on the team unless you want to be on a travel team, but to get in the door and get a membership, for a CrossFit gym is expensive. Uh, and there's, uh, there, it, it's very small. There are some athletes out there like Elijah, Elijah Muhammad, who's developing these kind of opportunities for, uh, at, at risk youth to get trained as coaches, get exposure to functional fitness so that, um, that it's there because if, if, you know, the cost barrier was there, then they wouldn't be able to do it. And these are, these are, again, you know, athletes or people you meet with kids you meet with where um, parents are working, parents are working two jobs to, um, to pay the rent, keep food on the table, pay for other stuff. And that if they're not going to that after school activity, if they're not going to that sport or having that opportunity, where are they going to go? Um, and a lot of times, unfortunately it's to the street, you know, and not good things happen there sometimes. Uh, so creating those opportunities in, in the CrossFit spaces is, is really important. Yeah. I, I think we could probably break down most sports in that way. Oh, sure. Right? Sure. You know, I work with wrestlers that if you're an elite wrestler, you go to a club. And it's not cheap. And if you're, if you play a sport like hockey or lacrosse, oh, sure. but, I mean, you know, it, it, the cost barrier is huge, right? Uh, it, it, if you're a baseball player, you're going to a, a baseball gym. It, it just, or, or, and you probably play AAU 
and they want to ship you to perfect game tournaments in, in Florida, Texas, California, they want to ship you to showcases. Yeah. I mean, that that's probably a whole nother podcast, right? Yes. The, the, the youth and development sports system and, and the, the barrier to entry, right? Yes, absolutely. That, that is, a, that is a whole different conversation. Um, part of my thoughts on that are again, um, what's that telling a young athlete? Mm-hmm. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, uh, I read a really good article in, in the New Yorker about a year or so ago about like the, the growth of boutique sports like um, squash and lacrosse and, and other ones. And that uh, what you'll oh, at least along like the coastline, the Eastern coast is people who have means ha- sometimes have live-in coaches. I can't even wrap my head around that. No, no, I, I can't, I can't either, but um there's also this kind of, um, I guess, education that comes into play. And I'm very interested in your thoughts on this developmentally of where's the gas and the break for athletes or families or parents when like, you know, um, I want my kid to go to X school or, or what, you know, based on how they're doing, you know, there, there's this big push to go D1. This is a big push to go to this school and to play this sport. And I think, well, I'm going to stop. I, I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I'll start here. There's a book called The Arm by Jeff Passan. Um, it's on UCL injuries in baseball players. He does such a beautiful job of kind of uh, peeling back the curtain on the multi-billion dollar industry that is youth sports and travel baseball and how harmful it is um, not only to the arms of players, but to the emotional development of players who are traveling nationwide at 12. Right. And uh, you know, it's a, it's a great read. It's a, it's a fascinating book. Uh, but but it's also educational and and really at the end it, it, it's too much. Yeah, it's too much. It's too and much. It, it benefits people who want to make money, and I, you know there's there's limited evidence to suggest that it really makes uh, youth athletes better baseball players, right? And we and and this we could break down soccer, right? We could break down the 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 football showcase circuit, the the whole thing. Um, so so I think that's important to say. Um, what, what was your original question again? Just thoughts about like, you know, investing huge amounts of time, effort and money to get your, your athlete to play division, whatever, whatever. I, we see this even just in your average run of the mill high schooler where they look at the U S news and world report, uh, college ranking system. And they based a school, they, they pick a school based on that number, right? Which, it's pretty arbitrary in a lot of instances, right? I, I think it's so much about fit. Mm-hmm. I think it's so much about fit. And um, you need to find a program and a coach that you want to play for. Um, I, I think it's a, a really hard thing to balance as, a, as an athlete, though, right? Because you, you want to compete with the best. And, you know, if, if Nick Saban tweets at you, 
that's going to be intoxicating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it would be for me too. But I think it's hard for certain athletes to project what that life will look like day in and day out. And we've seen more and more across sports players from division two schools or, or um, division one, double a honestly junior college sports kids are getting access to showcasing their talent. Yes. You're not going to, you're not going to be the athlete that you can be if there's not, that's not true. There's, there's a greater challenge to being the athlete you want to be if you're not in the right environment. What do you think of that idea? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're going back to your, you know, I'm going to have to read this book. That's a great, it's a great suggestion. Oh. Arm. The arm. Um, yeah. You, you might not be able to, so I'm not aware of research that proves or disproves or has some type of correlation between an increased engagement in a specific sport. And then I guess, um, the level achieved in sport. However, as a proxy, you can look at rates of injury, uh, right. That any, that's well said. That's well at, said. Yeah. At, at, you know, so what's going to get you better staying healthy, you know, that, uh, the more that an athlete does one sport for a longer period of time, you know, literature shows they're at a far higher risk for, overuse injuries or, or even catastrophic injuries because they're not maintaining that, that, you know, biomechanical balance and rounding themselves out as an athlete. Um, and you hear stories of like, you, you usually, you don't hear this as much in the U S but um, I think of athletes coming out of Europe, like in, in boxing or weightlifting where they're encouraged to dance or do gymnastics or things like this that helps them build kinesthetic awareness and, and other types of uh, movement patterns. Um, I, I have a lot of, I don't know if a lot, but I, I definitely am concerned that, you know, about that kind of culture of kind of pushing your child to, to go to a certain level because, you know, I talk about this with a coworker of mine who, uh, Chris, he's been on the podcast. He was um, an elite marathon runner. You kind of know, you, you, you kind of know pretty early on, you know, if an athlete is, is um, there's a, you know, the way, the way I like to phrase it is it almost, there's almost like a genetic culling that happens at each level that, you know, once you get to, college um you know being 511 and 180 pounds isn't gonna work out as a tight end right? that that's that's not gonna work right and so it um could you put on 60 pounds and get really fast and and play per- perhaps like a linebacker position or you know but 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 again speed is very genetic Speed is very genetic. Um, eyesight in baseball is huge and it's genetic. You know, wingspan in, in basketball is huge. That's genetic, right? There's genetic components here that I think get some, well, uh, I think sometimes 
uh, children become a uh, narcissistic extension for the for the parent that uh, instead of allowing them to become who they will be who they become is a is a is a reflection on the, the parents sense of uh, self-worth and so sometimes you know that could be uh, a factor there yeah yeah I, I couldn't agree with that more that was that last piece was really really well said and you know the I think flexibility is so important in life when we talk about mental health literacy and, and um, psychological skills training, flexibility is important because that 511 180 might want to play a different position and that's okay. I see 14 year olds come into my office and they tell me they're PO pitcher only. You, you just started puberty. (laughs) (laughs) You're pitcher only. You don't want to swing a bat ever again. And, and that is, I, I don't put the responsibility for that on the athlete. No. That, that's this, this system where, I, I mean, it, it, something that's really quite common in baseball, for example, is players will get to the minors and they were catchers their whole life. An organization will turn them into a reliever. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's, you know, so you're going to go, you're going to go quote unquote PO at 14. I feel like they're being robbed and, and flexibility in life. I mean, if you're going to make it in your sport, you have to be able to adapt, right? Yes. And, and, and to your point about genetics too. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're throwing 62 in high school, you got a long way, you need to add 30 miles an hour. I don't, I don't know that genetically it's in the cards, but I also think it's important for you and I to be responsible and communicate that, you know, there is a lot of research about, you know, the, the, the Anders Ericsson stuff on deliberate practice and that just because you don't run a four, four forty in high school, doesn't mean you should give up on your passion. True. Right? That's too, that's too results oriented to me. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, who knows, what kind of um, growth and development you can have, particularly when you're talking about a young athlete, right? I guess the stance I'm coming from is, you know, being a broken record uh, of, you can encourage an athlete to do that based on finding whatever their best is and wherever, wherever the chips falls, where the chips fall, right? And there's a difference between that and uh, the only thing that will matter is if I played uh, Division One attack at Notre Dame. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and, you know, for some people, you know, that's a goal. Maybe other people in the family went to Notre Dame and um, it just, you know, Again, going back to the you know identity stuff, the mental health stigma stuff. That what I what I'm you know what I'm kind of having that third year to a sensitive year to is like, okay, so what's that about? What's that about? Um, yeah, we've had we've had a good uh, good podcast here, Chris. I think we have, Pete. I want to. I want to thank you for uh, inviting me on. This has been. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Do you want to come on again sometime? 
uh, I jump at the chance. Awesome. Thank cool. you so much for coming on, Chris. Thank you, Pete. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll get more than five listeners this time. We'll see. There's a way to track it, but I haven't been tracking it. So yeah. I'll look I had home. fun. Did you have fun? I had a great time. That's all that matters. Have a good Sunday, bud. You too.